Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Canadian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Phil Henderson, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. David P. Thomas and Dr. Belden Coburn, co-editors of Capitalism and Dispossession, Corporate Canada at Home and Abroad, released in 2022 by Fernwood Publishing. Dr. Thomas and Dr. Coburn, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot for having us. Uh, To begin with, I wonder if I could get both of you to introduce yourselves to the listeners. I'll let Dave go first. Uh, He's the first co-editor, co-author on listed here. So, Dave. Yeah, sure. So, um, I I was born and raised in Calgary, Calgary, Alberta, and eventually found my way into academia. Completed PhD in 2006 from Queen's University in the political studies department. And then a few years later, start, a couple of years later, started a tenure track job at Mount Allison University. And here I'm in the Department of Politics and International Relations uh, and have been at Mount Allison for 14 years. I have a general interest in the role of Canadian corporations abroad and have done a lot of academic work on that in the last uh, 10, 10 years or so. That's my primary area and my primary focus with my uh, with with my research. And I'm Belden Coburn. I am uh, here on my own Indigenous unceded territory. Uh, I'm Algonquin. I'm from a small reserve that's about an hour and a half west of my current academic location, which is at the University of Ottawa. Um, My reserve is the Algonquins of Pequawkmagon First Nation. I was born and raised on my territory. I didn't live on the reserve. I grew up about 20 minutes away. After high school, I went off and did economics and uh, political science, finished degrees in both, was a little bit more interested in political science and political theory, so pursued my graduate studies in that. And um, I'm also a product of the same political science department as as Dave at Queen's University. Um, After that, um, did a few jaunts at uh, McGill and Carleton and decided to, uh, I guess, 
take up a tenure track uh, at the University of Ottawa, where I am now. And um, my interests these days are, well, my background was, I, I guess my PhD studies was political theory and Canadian politics. So uh, the work here that uh, Dave and I did, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, um, really takes that on. But Dave's sort of comparativist and uh, international relations widens the scope to, uh, you know, the analysis abroad of, uh, I guess, the, the, the theoretical perspective that we applied here and, and the other contributors, too. So it's an edited volume, but um, that's about a bit it for me. Fantastic. Thank you both. Um, it might be most helpful to the listeners if you could explain what the central objective of this edited volume is and how did it come to be? What are the core questions that it sets out to answer? Do you want me to start on that, Belden? I can say a couple things. Um, well, maybe it, maybe it might be helpful if I introduce Dave because it's it's Dave's work segues into this. So Dave is, has a previous book that he wrote as solo authored on um, Bombardier Abroad and was sort of looking at the, uh, I guess, the state-backed organized capital and dispossession, I guess, the incursions abroad and what, what corporations could get away with. And um, without giving away too much, like this is kind of how it came to be, is that Dave and I had spoken about things um, and said, what kind of analysis can you bring to the Canadian and that we could do something about different cases? So that's a, you know, I'll let Dave speak to sort of the central objective of the edited volume, but that's how it sort of came to be. And there was a few other um scholars out there that contributed chapters to it that worked in in similar aspects that could fill out the entire volume yeah so as Veldin mentioned i I had this kind of long-standing interest in in looking at the role of canadian corporations abroad and what i what i the main objectives of of this volume in my mind at the start anyway were were threefold Um, one I want to look at um, connecting local cases within Canada and to, to global cases and start connecting some of the literature because they're, they're with, with a few notable exceptions, the, the two are, are somewhat siloed and, and treated uh, independently or, or, or separate. So that's the first uh, objective. Um, the second thing was to highlight, high, really uh, gather enough cases together that we could really make a case for and highlight the, the, the destructive nature of Canadian capital, uh, both at home and abroad. Um, and uh, thirdly, the, not to treat the, the third objectives was not to treat the cases as exceptional or, or as an aberration, but rather to treat the cases as though they are um, uh, the expected and normalized outcome of, of life under global capitalism and how global capitalism operates. So, so to go through the cases, not to say, well, there's this one bad Apple corporation that did this thing. Well, no, let's frame this within a, within a broader understanding of global capitalism and understand that this is actually n- normal and expected and quite usual uh, uh, behavior, behavior and outcomes of uh, Canadian capital abroad. So those were the, um, those were the, the, the three core objectives I had uh, at, at the start. Um, uh, the, the other part of your question is about the kind of key um, questions that, that, I, want, that uh, I want to start with and then Veldin and I worked with uh, together. Um, one was uh, 
uh, as I said before, how are the local, local and global cases related and connected? So how can Veldin and I start tying some of these threads together between the, between the cases? Um, secondly, um, what is the role of the Canadian state in facilitating um, the, the accumulation and dispossession that we, that we uh, document through the cases in the book? And, and three, um, and this is kind of a, a more general question that has guided a lot of my work, including this book, is uh, where do the, where do the uh, profits and the wealth come from that we enjoy here um, as, as Canadians? So what kind of processes and, and structures that are in place that allow these, ma- these kind of massive profits and wealth to be generated in, this, in, this, uh, in certain parts of this, uh, of this part of the world? So those are kind of the objectives and questions as I, as I, uh, as I, as I saw them at, at the beginning. Excellent. Yeah, I think that those are all really thoroughly reflected in each of the contributing chapters to this volume as well. And I appreciated most this point that you all both made about tying a global lens uh, in terms of an analysis of capitalism as a global system to what appear to be local uh, examples and case studies, but that are always multi-scalar, actually, that are both global and local in their ramifications. And then, obviously, the central importance of uh, the national, i.e. the state, question. And I really think capitalism and dispossession is an important contribution to our scholarly understanding of the Canadian state, which has been a long-standing question in Canadian studies. Uh, many of the contributions to this volume draw from and advance these debates on the nature of what the state form within capitalist societies actually means. Could you discuss for the listeners how the Canadian state in particular, but the state form in general, is theorized by the contributors to this volume and what this offers to other Canadianist scholars going forward? Well, for myself uh, and my background in, in uh, studying Indigenous politics, especially the politics of colonialism, anti-colonial resistance, and what have you, uh, you know, we we do bring a very materialist and sort of an, a Marxist, neo-Marxist analysis, and most of the contributors do as well. So we could probably fall back on the old view that the uh, the state is really just sort of the organized executive committee you know from the the communist manifesto though i i don't know if we're, we're purely marxist in any way is to exercise or to organize the course of power on behalf of organized capital so capitalist interests are exercised or mediated through it so uh capital becomes depoliticized and in my um chapter i rely a little bit upon um Hannah Arendt, which is strange because she refuted much of the Marxist view, I guess, of the teleological understanding of the Marxist scientific view of the unfolding of uh, human development anyways. But um, uh, I rely upon Hannah Arendt to probably say, um, you know, or, or to draw upon what she was saying in the second part of the origins of totalitarianism, because in that part, she's talking about... Uh, colonialism basically so the incursions into africa and asia by colonial powers so basically opening up that part of the book on the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie is that you know understanding uh capital and dispossession so at the at the at you know it's right in the title here capitalism and dispossession is what is going on around the world because we do have sort of set up 
uh, political culture here in Canada where there is almost the same colonial organization of metropole and colony or the periphery. So things are out of sight, out of mind, where capitalism is ravaging Indigenous territories, whether it is in the Global South, as I think Dave and Tyler Shipley's chapter looks at, I guess, much more of the sort of financialization of, of things and the financing of, of converting things into liquidity and moving it across borders to accumulate wealth in these Canadian metropoles, as it were, or centers of finance. Um, here in the chapters that I do is the dispossession of Indigenous territories and uh, examine how the state um, supports, I guess, really spreads out the liability. And um, it's sort of like a clarion call um, or an indictment of capitalism, especially since the financial collapse in the uh, mid to late 2000s is it socializes the losses but privatizes the gains which has always been sort of you know what it what it has been is that you know all losses have been social since the uh, initial moment of the clearing of the commons and the privatization of the uh, everything that's publicly or communally held this is still ongoing and uh, I think um, for for Dave and I, because in the early discussions that Dave had and what Dave's first book, which sort of spurs this analysis or the, the work that we did here when we first started talking several years ago, uh, is he kind of wanted to pull back the curtain and say, we don't have a kinder, gentler sort of, um, you know, peacemaking state in Canada, we have one that's voraciously devouring Indigenous territories, or at least backing in the same way that, you know, Marx might um, characterize it as like, in service, uh, like the uh, brute service of capitalism, like, capital has its political emancipation, and it can go around sort of freely in the global south. But also there are these regions and in my economic studying, we used to do regional economics or international um, development studies. And it was very much depoliticized. So uh, here we also see the human cost as well in some of these chapters. Uh, and this is right, right now here in Canada. Um, and this is also Canadian corporations as uh, Dave. So we sort of divided up the at home and in abroad sections for the editing uh, based on, I guess, Dave's uh, academic expertise and, and I guess my own sort of with Indigenous territories is to say that, you know, we're living comfortably in the centers of finance, Montreal, like the MTVs as it might have been, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, living life you know, I mean, most of us are proletarian <laughs> middle class, but um, subsidized where there is the circulation of wealth that has been drawn out uh, on the backs of indigenous people still. So uh, many of the, all the chapters point to certain cases. And at, at the core, is, as you asked just a little bit earlier, the core question is, what is the state's role in this? And it's, and it's not just a, um, and, and I mean, Basically, I, there's the uh, the coercive power that's been exerted against indigenous peoples in colonialism. How it's doing it in in um, the international realm, out of sight, out of mind, that becomes a little bit of a different question because I mean the state can't necessarily exercise power in jurisdictions where it doesn't. Although, as as Dave's work with the other authors shows. 
it could certainly uh, shore up the the capital might of organized ventures. And um, maybe I'll just pass it off to Dave. Mm-hmm. Answer. Yeah, thanks, Phil. And I'll, I'll just add a couple of things to that. I, so one thing um, that might be important for the listeners is that uh, most of the most of the authors in the chapter didn't really um, didn't really do heavy theoretical work in the chapters. Um, and, and this would apply to their understanding of the state. So and because we we asked them um, and, and told them that the general goal of the of the of the volume was to make a, a more or less accessible text for people from a wide uh, a variety of backgrounds. So there isn't a lot of heavy theorizing uh, of the state in the in the, in most of the chapters. There isn't some, but not all. Um, but 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 um, if I think about a couple examples in the book and and, and to your question. So how do we understand the state? So in the chapter on uh, Guatemala, that's co-authored by uh, Jennifer Moore, Karen Weisbart, and Charlotte Connolly, uh, in that and who are all you know really really knowledgeable of the case uh, at hand, um, they do a lot of work on this idea of, of what they call economic diplomacy. So they're looking specifically at how does the Canadian state intervene diplomatically overseas. In a variety of contexts, their focus is on Guatemala, in order to grease the wheels of 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 corporate accumulation, especially in the mining. They're mostly focused on the mining sector, right? So, what does the Canadian state do at various points um, in, to to make sure that Canadian corporations can uh, have unfettered access as much as possible to the resources in countries like Guatemala? So their kind of their theorizing or, or understanding of the state is that the state, uh, in this case, is literally uh, its job is to literally um, make sure that corporations can can access these resources as easily as possible, and be there if any problems uh, should arise with local governments, with local protest movements, with intergovernmental organizations, anyone who's sort of trying to ask difficult questions or pose. Uh, problems for this unfettered access to resources. That's where the Canadian state can step in and make sure that those barriers can be uh, can be removed for for Canadian capital. So that's kind of just one example, I think, of how how the uh, um, uh, the authors do it. The second example I want to use quickly is the chapter by Sakura Saunders, and she looks specifically at uh, what what goes on in Canada in order to um, make sure that Canadian corporations are not held accountable within Canada for things that they're doing abroad, in particular mining. Again, she focuses uh, almost all of her work on, on the mining. Uh, so, so, uh, so, and in this, ch- this chapter, she uh, extensively documents how the Canadian state has at every step of the way worked towards uh, removing accountability from co- Canadian corporations abroad and making sure that, that they aren't held accountable in any way, shape, or form at, at home, legally, politically, or whatever, um, for, for the things that they get up to overseas, whether it's um, you know stealing land, destroying the environment, or many of the other things that we document in, in the book. So those two examples kind of point towards how some of the authors look at the Canadian state as a facilitator right, of, for these processes of accumulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's a, a live issue too, as we saw over the course of this summer with uh, several, I believe, eight mine workers in Burkina Faso uh, dying as a result of the Trivoli mine's uh, inadequate safety measures. On the same 
day that it was announced that all the miners who had been lost in a flood, uh, their bodies had been recovered and they were pronounced as deceased, the Canadian ambassador to Burkina Faso was having a meeting with yet another mining corporation and in their condolence tweet had actually acknowledged that uh, they were excited to see the further development of Canadian mining interests in Western Africa. So this is a, a really live issue that I think all of your case studies are actually really rich theoretical groundworks uh, for understanding precisely that original claim uh, that the state is the uh, the governing executive of the bourgeoisie or what, whatever the line that Belt was looking for from the Communist Manifesto. Um, your, one of your central concepts that both you and your contributors uh, move throughout this text with is the concept of accumulation by dispossession. Uh, and it's used to describe the animating force and objective behind the social relations of capitalism. Could you explain this concept to the listeners uh, and maybe why it's so central to the argument of this volume as a whole? Sure, I can, I can start with that one uh, if you'd like, Bill. Um, so so um, the concept accumulation by dispossession uh, comes from the uh, famous geog- Marxist geographer David Harvey. And what he's doing is uh, he's working with an older conception or concept called primitive accumulation. And so this is a Marxist uh, concept to understand historically how uh, they, they talk most often about how people were removed from commonly held land and that land was turned into private property. This is primitive accumulation. So what David Harvey does with accumulation by dispossession, he tries to bring it forward to the contemporary context and argue that um, this that this is still occurring in many different forms and, and shapes. So... Um, on the, so there's two sides to it. There's the accumulation side. So some people are accumulating vast wealth and, and, and profits. And then on the other side is the dispossession. So some people are being dispossessed or some people are losing out. Um, and um, we thought that this was a good uh, concept to use for, for the framing of, of much of the book. And some of the authors use this in their, in their work as well. So, for example, um, you know, Canadian, so Canadian corporations accumulating great wealth at the expense of uh, indigenous people being dispossessed, dispossessed of their land, waterways, uh, culture, uh, etc. So that's the that's um, in general how we sort of understand or 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 frame the concept in the book. But I'm not sure if Eldon wants to say uh, anything further about it. Sure, and and I don't think it it, it prefigures into the book as much as it ought to, um, because I think both Dave and I were were really sort of inspired by the intellectual work of um, Glenn Coulthard in Redskin White Masks, uh, rejecting the colonial politics of recognition, because I mean, and, and and he does like a really masterful job of examining, you know, a, a lot of um, really, I guess from a theoretical standpoint, tying in just. This, speaking to and speaking amongst uh you know like hegel and marx and what have you um but talking about how this is really an ongoing process when his examination of like his the applied theory into into the canadian uh colonialism uh especially amongst his people dene in northwest territories and up in the north anyways but um so the accumulation by dispossession, as David mentioned, sort of originates with uh, David Harvey, is that I guess capital uh, 
And it's like the failures of the reproduction of capital is that, well, I mean, cutting quarters basically is, you know, you legitimate theft. Um, so you, you dispossess those who have generated um, their own wealth. So Marx, I guess, had theorized in some sense that, um, well, you're not just going to go around uh, reproducing capital is you're, you're going to consolidate capital and it's going to be larger corporations devouring smaller ones to um, uh, almost monopolize in, in certain senses, but uh, they'll use markets and the uh, instruments of financialization. So even during the financial collapse of 2007, eight or nine or what have you is those who had wealth that had declined, it was scooped up basically, or it, at least um, through mechanisms of the state backing. And this is the legitimization. And, 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 I'll, and I'll talk about a few chapters here that we did is legitimizing just their dispossession. So especially um, through other financial instruments, such as the subprime mortgages, where they could just, you know, dispossess people of their homes through the financial instruments of the mortgages they hold. And then sell it back to them it's not like they're creating new real estate for example is they dispossess it of them to put it back into the circuits of capital so they again can capitalize on it um part of that legitim legitimation of it through the um i guess and it's not really coercive in many ways so it's not the exertion of physical force and violence that we have at certain that initial moment where it's theorized and, and we talk about how it's depoliticized at adam smith so where where dave and i uh, do a little bit of theoretical discussions of the state uh you know we side basically on with 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 marx and say you know these moments of the you know primitive accumulation where they shuttle the peasants off the land well it's the same thing right now it's we see it in the news with with wet Sowetan, with uh the armed forces of the state going in with the heavy arm to remove indigenous peoples. And this is really right on the doorstep of the most civilized parts of, of Canada out in British Columbia in order for uh, these huge corporations. So driving uh, pipelines through their territory saying like, this is no longer your communally held territory, even though you have indigenous title for, I don't know if any international listeners are um, tuning into this, but it means that they really haven't ceded the territory to the state. The state is just going in like they might have done in, you know, the transition from medieval society to modernity back during, I don't know, 16th centuries. All you poor people get off. This now belongs to um, my top favorite corporation, or at least capitalist, or, or the emerging uh, merchant class that can can buy it up. Uh, so with uh, Don Hugavine and Russell Myers Ross, there and and Russell Myers is, is indigenous from that particular territory out in Silcatine. They're looking at um, the state sort of, uh, and this also comes um, after the chapter by Aidan Alderson is maybe the bureaucratic and technocratic organization of territory so Aidan Alderson looks at land use planning so dispossession by design and Don Hugavine and Russell Myers Ross they look at sort of the environmental protection and um, the bureaucratic consultation measures really how they I you know go in and um, I guess really lubricate consent almost 
uh, there's always the looming threat that if you don't consent to these, so hey, we're gonna we're gonna build a dam on your on your territory. If you don't, uh, you know, consent to these multi-billion-dollar projects, then there's the sword hanging over their heads, which is going to be the state, like almost paramilitary. You know, in Canada, it's the RCMP, which has been deployed in Western Canada. Um, you know, which was an outgrowth of the Northwest Mounted Police, or our, our Mounties, as it were, which were literally um, a militia created to uh, extricate, and that's a very generous and charitable word, uh, oftentimes fairly brutally, of Indigenous peoples from their territory in order for uh, settler capitalism to unfold. And mostly a settler uh incursions for the purpose of the extraction of natural resources and wealth which were converted into you know liquidity and and monetary value which back in in 18th 19th century development of canada colonialism of canada was shipped back to the colon or i mean the the crowns in in europe mostly britain by this point but uh so we see aiden alderson look at the land use planning and Canada's sort of unilateralism where it shores up Canada's corporations uh, saying, well, essentially they eye up the, the land and say, we want to use this. Uh, we'll go in and we'll, um, what he talks about is, you know, extracting consent from them. And uh, it, it, it is, it, it lends itself to a little bit of the, and, and not quite you know, the brutality that Hannah Rent speaks to, but um, the overwhelming bureaucratic nature um, that is depoliticized, or at least put into the hands of those who can't actually, if we're looking at a, a very purest account of democracy, don't really have the legitimacy to to undertake these activities. Um, I don't really talk about that too much in, in my own chapter, but uh, these again are out in the periphery where uh, indigenous people still living. Uh, we have one and a half million in Canada are being dispossessed, not just because another society says, well, we really need this to live on, but it is for organized capital to exploit for its own surpluses. Mm-hmm. And I think it really shows across the case studies in the text that the process of accumulation by dispossession is not what you might call a policy option, as in it's not something that is sitting around waiting to be picked up at a moment of convenience, but rather it's a constitutive and structural logic within the social relations of global capitalism, that it's the requirement of the capitalist system to find a uh, what it views as unused or untapped resources, which are often simply the resources of other peoples, uh, and to dispossess them of those. And so you have case studies throughout the book uh, that center on a federal government that's held by the Liberal Party, a provincial government that's held by the New Democratic Party, ostensibly the Socialist Party in Canada or Social Democratic, uh, and conservative parties. And each of them are implicated in these processes both at home and abroad, as the subtitle of the text would indicate. Mm -hmm. What's also really rich in the analysis that's provided across this volume is that in each chapter, to varying degrees, questions of race, gender, coloniality, and class 
are treated as interrelated and co-constitutive of one another, even if sometimes contradictorily. Regimes, they form regimes of power that are, in other words, enmeshed rather than discreetly organized. Why was this an important orientation for the text as a whole? And what does it offer the study of capitalism and Canadian society that more discrete modes of analyzing each of these regimes of power might miss? Yeah, uh, well, (sighs) yeah, I mean, these long, really, they're very emergent discussions, too, because, uh, you know, we're coming to grips with it, too, with our discussions of, you know, the monarchical constitution in Canada and the emerging social consciousness or at least publicly consciousness. Public, public consciousness around indigenous resistance movements, especially, and this comes to light in Ingrid Waldron's chapter of um, indigenous resistance to this ongoing dispossession, uh, is that a lot of this has been, oh, and, and, and I guess like early theorists as well that we still rely upon for, and, and, and the reliable critiques of uh, capitalist societies, uh, not just for the technical political economy analysis, but also the philosophy like you can find in Marx as well, is that there were these dimensions uh, granted uh, in uh, in capital, capital, das Kapital. Marx does speak to coloniality and indigenous peoples and, you know, especially the extraction of for, you know, gold and the wealth and what have you. Uh, but at the time, I you know he just didn't go into it um, to talk about race and gender, especially in, in the coloniality. I mean, there's there's short chapters, uh, uh, but there was a lot of work left to be done, and there's there's certain um, particularities about the historical aspects. Uh, not that Marx was a historical. Um, I mean, he was in the historical materialism uh, business, after all, that going through various historical epochs. But uh, that there was a little bit much more to be told, um, especially in the racialization of indigenous peoples. Uh, sometimes, yeah, they are interrelated, sometimes co-constitutive, uh, especially, you know, creating a new marginalized and and they're not really actually peasantry in some cases especially i mean i'm going to look at the chapter that i wrote on grassy narrows is that i look at um uh you know there's i guess race and class do overlap but i talk about new settlers coming in and visiting barbarity upon indigenous peoples and it's it's clearly upon it's clearly divided along racial lines they saw them as subhuman individuals but also there's a lot of i guess early settlers were the lower class of european society mostly british coming over here so and you also see a lot of irish as well so even though they were uh you know mostly from the dominant sector society true uh the irish has often been seen as racialized as subhuman to the British, I mean, they were colonized people as well. But uh, I turned to Hannah Arendt to to examine them as the human refuse that were ejected and and followed capital because their society had, as she says, sort of spit them out. Like they were the trash in their own society. And the only 
purpose in life really was to come over uh, overseas, far off distant places with the emancipated capital to go and devour the territories and natural assets of distant people. So, um, you know, we've overlooked, and I haven't mentioned it quite yet, the gendered aspects that comes out in Ingrid Waldron's um, chapter as well on the Shubenacadie River, the grassroots grandmothers and the fight against Alton Gas, but also especially in Rebecca Hall's chapter, which opens it up on the gendered violence of Canadian extraction. And she talks quite a bit about the sort of parasitic nature on the social relations of indigenous women. Um, So capital in these fly-in, fly-out mining communities, there are the sort of non-capitalist modes of labor production, uh, the wealth that, again, subsidizes capitalists. So there's requirements for, you know, uh, individuals who are working for the fly-in, fly-out communities that go up for several weeks at a time, and they require some sustenance uh, outside of their working hours. They punch in their clock, go into the mine for 12-hour shifts. At the end, they exploit the work of the, I guess, the private realm, as it might be. So the households and the domestic labors of Indigenous women, and sometimes the, I guess, the, the, the sexualities of them as well. So those are in service of sustaining the the working class, which themselves are exploited by um, capital. Uh, so it's, it goes unremunerated, but it's also a very violent form of capital that goes well, it's it's disconnected from the analysis that, uh, and, and it's the brilliance of of um, Rebecca Hall, who just published a book with the University of Toronto Press called Refracted Economies, uh, examining it more in length. So, yeah, race, gender, coloniality, and class—they're uh, all tied up, and in many ways, most of the chapters. And I'll let Dave speak to the international aspect uh, or the overseas and abroad. Many of them tease it out and try to parse them for the analysis to put a sharper point on how they're implicated because you could just be lost in the class analysis and say, well, the longstanding history, I guess, or the tale told in Canadian studies is that there are these brown people running around the world. They're shuttled off onto small reserves uh, overseas. Same thing when you're going to uh, Asia, Africa is, and I mean, this is more contemporary because... You know, some of the most heinous mass crimes have been perpetrated by colonial crowns in the name of um, capital expansion into their territories. Right now, it is just that we've cleared the commons, we've privatized their land, and that's a problem for the 19th century. Now, perhaps we'll remedy a few things, um, but uh, that's not happening anymore. Rather, the case is... Quite a bit of violence is still unfolding against Indigenous peoples. I mean, at the heart of it, too, is uh, the fact that they're still evicted from their homes. So corporations are bringing in um, the large equipment to destroy houses that they live in. Uh, women, children, husbands, elderly, multi-generational dwellings are destroyed for the purposes of corporations to come in they're left with nothing and it's sometimes very nice to say they're proletarianized that's it's like okay we'll get off the land move into the city 
find yourself an apartment and a job because there's the labor market uh, in the urban center that's now waiting to take up your your work and labor. You'll get remunerated from that. Uh, you're useful for the capital circuits there. Uh, don't worry, you'll get a new house when you start working. Uh, that's still that's still very much the violence and the primitive accumulation uh, underway. So. And I think as Rebecca Hall's chapter really brilliantly executes, is that um, accumulation by dispossession is structured through race, class, gender, and coloniality, both, as you've pointed to, Val, uh, outside the capitalist social relations in terms of how people are targeted for dispossession. And it reproduces itself within the waged economy as well, because one of the things that she brilliantly points out is the dependence of the waged economy on unwaged, typically feminized reproductive labor in the home, but also that there are plenty of indigenous women in these flying communities who are doing the work of cooking, cleaning, feeding in the waged economy, just at the absolute lowest end of what it means to be in the waged economy. So that gender and race, indigeneity, structure the entirety of the extractive industry as well, that it's typically white men uh, who have, yes, very hard work in terms of the physicality of the extractive industry, but the reproductive labor is always uh, crunched to make it as minimally waged as possible, basically, so that accumulation can expand uh, as rapidly as possible. Right. And you can imagine it really just from the machinations of corporate planning internally is that say, well, for costs, it's like, well, we're going to send up um, a few, um, you know, 737s or 737s, which, you know, might be 200 workers at a time to these large sites that are, you know, several hundred kilometers from uh, any other major urban center. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They're going to work 12-hour shifts, and we require our the optimization of our labor. So they'll punch in and punch out, and they might be very tired. They're going to need a good night's sleep, and they're going to need a, a cozy dwelling for them, uh, a warm cooked meal, and that's going to be provided by the local uh, economy. And it's and so she talks a little bit, and she gets into like sort of how there's like the mixed economy, but uh, there is that sort of traditional economy as well. So indigenous peoples might be doing um, non-capitalist productive uh, work um, for their for their own sustenance, but here they are tending to the needs of labor. So keeping their uh, corporate labor optimal for the next day when they go in for productivity is making sure you're well rested, well fed, and regenerated um, doing their laundry, and also at rates that we would say are exploitative at best and almost um, servitude. So they're forced into these circuits of capital exploitation of labor. Uh, the state helps them along as well. So the state has forbidden them in many cases to go out on the land or into their commons as a communally held territories to undertake the activities that have organized their society that they've organized themselves around for millennia. So there's the really sharp and abrupt um, introduction of them. And, and it's, it's sharp in the sense that it's like this, the state says, you can no longer do this. You can't go out. Uh, we've put you on a reserve. So let's use the case of my reserve. It's only 6.9 square kilometers. And in the province of Ontario, we have 36,000 square kilometers. They say you can't go out there and do what you did before to sustain yourselves. 
Um, if you do, you have to engage in the um, private modes of uh, accumulation, which is, you know, getting permission from the, the state to say, I'm going to start using this for private wealth generation. Um, and I'm going to put people to work too. Um, so no longer can they do that. So it is the, you know, I think it's John Stuart Mill, basically the peasant's choice. You don't have a real option anymore that you must go now to sell your labor in that market and what the rate you're going to get to, especially up there, uh, you know, the great wealth that's being extracted in these mines, especially what um, Rebecca Hall examines is diamond mining <laughs> is it's, it's left at a rate that's is um, it, it stigmatizes their labor and it considerably undervalues it. So yeah, there's a question of justice as well in the distribution of uh, benefits and burdens here is, is for labor itself. But um, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'll just add a couple of things. I mean, when we were kind of starting out to think about the book, combining all these things made a lot of sense because when we were thinking about the cases, there are so many, you know, uh, rich analyses out there uh, and critiques of capitalist accumulation that draw on settler colonial studies on, on various feminist perspectives um, um, on, on, on analyses of, of racial capitalism and these kinds of things. So, so um, I mean, especially today, I mean, this, there's so much great cutting edge stuff out there that we really want to tackle these cases um, in, in a way that, 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 that made sense. And so what, and what you get is things like Belden mentioned, Ingrid Waldron, who does this amazing work on um, uh, environmental racism, right? And she uses that lens to look at the, the case of Alton Gas. Um, and then some of the other cases, using these various kind of ways of looking at it uh, is really imperative to understand the case and understand what's going on. So if I go back to the Guatemala case in the book for, for a moment, um, uh, they, the authors of that chapter bring in uh, a racial analysis of what's going on there. And in order to understand how resistance to mining in that particular context plays out and how corporations and governments dismiss that resistance as irrelevant or, or unimportant, understanding race is really important because what they point out in that chapter is that Canadian... Uh, embassy officials and other diplomats fall back on the racist tropes that are used by the Guatemalan government and the Guatemalan elite to describe indigenous people who are resisting the mines. So saying things like, well, you know, the, the people resisting the mines, they don't really have a good understanding. If they only knew, you know, the full benefits of the mine, they'd come around. Um, or, you know, they're very easily paid off by, by uh, NGOs and whatnot. They don't really, they're not really invested in this. Um, and without understanding the racial dynamics within a place like Guatemala, you can't really understand that case and how it unfolds. And if I just give you another quick example, the case in Indonesia written by Tracy Glynn. Um, so she uses uh, feminist thinkers like uh, Silvia Federici in her in her work and one of the really interesting things that she finds when she was looking at the impact on on women in particular in the mining community in the mining communities there were there were there was a group of women that were um that that were dispossessed 
and lost land and lost livelihoods and, and didn't come out very well at all uh, after the mining started. There were other groups of women, however, who actually did benefit and had husbands who were employed in the mine or or whatever else, right? So so this was really important in her feminist analysis because there isn't just this category of, of women and they're all and they're all the same. But again, you have to understand in a case like that to really get, get a grasp on it, you have to understand gender and class in that particular case. Um, so I just wanted to throw out those two examples because I, I think it's a really good uh, question, Phil. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I what I really appreciate about both of your answers and the text as a whole is, again, that movement between the ways in which race, gender, class, and coloniality clearly function at a global level, um, so that like uh, the the point, the cases that you just pointed to, Dave, and the really infamous case of a former Canadian mine owner, uh, Peter Monk, who would often use tropes of uh, the racialized other of the global South or the third world to justify the violence that it's well documented that his own mine operators were uh, deploying against local indigenous and racialized communities in the South. Uh, so we can see the global element, but also clearly it functions at a local scale as well in differentiated ways. And I think that that's a thing that readers will really appreciate about the subtlety and the nuances of this text. Um, one of the things that capitalism and dispossession sets out to correct along this lines, uh, in your co-authored introduction, you refer to as the spatial myopia of scholarly studies about Canada's role in the global capitalist system. Could you describe how this myopia generally manifests within Canadianist scholarship? You've sort of alluded to this throughout, but also how the contributions to and the organization of your book is meant to challenge the way in which this myopia often manifests. Yeah, well, that's. <laughs> I think in the one phrase where we where we do sort of mention it, um, I think because the spatial kind of invokes the geographic expanse of it too, but it's it's more of an indictment um, on capitalist system on the out of sight, out of mind of the atrocities, and I, and, and I only briefly mentioned it earlier about how we believe Canada is this kinder, gentler state. We're known internationally as the peacekeepers. And yet we're deeply, we, the royal we, I guess we are, is, is the state and how we constitute ourselves and um, are deeply implicated in violence that is perpetrated in far off places. That doesn't make the front page. So even though uh, in Canada, the second largest, I guess, country in the world in terms of geographical expanse, you know, there, there's places where things have been unfolding for centuries and we think colonialism, I think a lot of Canadian scholars are now coming to grips that, you know, colonialism wasn't something of the 16th, 17th century, that it wasn't just a moment that even the worst excesses of, are still unfolding today. It's, it's a job that's, I guess, almost never done. Uh, it reproduces itself. It relies upon, and when you just mentioned earlier about like the intersection, I guess, and interrelated co-constitutive matter of race and coloniality, is that that dispossession is they they have an underclass of of human beings, I guess, as it were, like creating the artificial categories of race, where in Canada it relies upon that for the ongoing modes of dispossession um, that sustain 
capitalism, mostly through labor. I mean, you're, you know, both, both labor and capital in Canada is, is finite, but it's not been, most of the capital in, in terms of territory hasn't been fully exploited. There's still indigenous peoples living out on the land where um, capital is, is already eyeing up and saying, well, you know, we'll soon get rid of them. We'll shuttle them off into the cities where they won't have the sort of free home on the land of their communally held territorial social traditions um, permit them to live um but uh yeah canadianist scholarship actually had <coughs> excuse me a view of the territorial landscape is, is still largely empty uh political economy that's been influenced by harold ennis we sort of touch on him and i i think i could revisit him in my own chapter that still influences a lot of the study of the organization of what do we do as as um as an economy that is based upon feeding the world are we the junior partner uh there was that inferiority complex but it also had the idea that we had this vast open space that was an untapped resource nobody was occupying so there's the uh the terra nullius that is, I guess, reproduced in literal terms, but also conceptually is that there's nobody out there. We're not harming anyone. And I think Dave actually extends that analysis amongst the chapters that he co-edited with the contributors abroad. So it, it is that myopic under our perspective that Canadians have. We jump on the 401, we drive to our work, and there's nothing really outside the GTA. There's cottage country, which we go and visit now and then. But, uh, you know, the only understanding we have of that is the lingering stereotypes and caricatures of society of the pioneer village. That there might have been some Indians running around out there, like myself, like out in the country is like... If, if it ever were the case that there's these, these brown people wearing uh, feathers and leather living in teepees and whatnot, that's from a time long ago. Uh, and it, it, it's still, um, it still doesn't really have a place in uh, Canadianist scholarship, although I can see the changes as well. But even in, in my past 10 years, since I started my PhD, worked through it and completed, that still didn't register even in, in Canadian politics as well. So some of the, the readings that we got, like when I started as an Indigenous grad student, like even 10 years ago at this point, there, there was still no interest in Indigenous politics. And the colonial, anti-colonial, theoretical resistance literature was, was still sparse in, Cana- in Canadian politics or that Canadian th- tradition we borrowed or at least viewed it as something that might have happened in Africa. So from the French intellectuals, so I may say there, Franz Fanon and what have you, Albert Memmi, uh, they contributed to a canon which was unique to their part of the world. And it's like, wow, this is pretty radical literature, but it meant something over in Africa in the time of their own liberation and resistance and national resurgence against the colonizers that's not the case over here you know we're just we're just two solitudes and uh so here over in canada where we spoon fed uh and, and it's really good stuff i mean you know, i just invoke charles taylor here um reconciling the solitudes it's like so where are the indigenous people they're missing it's like well secretly and we've still been doing it is in, in my chapter on grassy narrows 
for almost 60 years is destroying a people all in the name of capitalist accumulation and the profits. I talk about capital and the mob and the hinterland. So in these, in that sort of spatial organization, and I am drawing from my own economic studies when we studied regional economics so the heartland and the hinterland hinterland is that place for exploiting and it's usually just a barren territory nobody else out there just we were the um as uh, harold Ennis called the hewers of wood and drawers of water uh that's all that was out there in the hinterland bring it to the heartland and bring that wealth here meanwhile um, you know, that orientation really isn't quite true. That is, those are the heartlands of indigenous peoples. And I think Dave can, uh, breathe some air into that analysis for overseas and distant places. Yeah, I'll just add a couple of quick, quick things. I mean, I think, uh, Phil, it's a really good question because, um, um, uh, the, there's a, there's sort of a, a group of people studying, Canadian actors abroad, Canadian corporations abroad. And there is a small literature on this, some, you know, some really great people. But no, most of those people are not Canadianists, right? So it's usually people like me who are who were trained in comparative politics or, or international relations who, who take that up. Um, but then we don't really fit, like someone like myself, I don't really fit very neatly into the IR and the comparative uh, area because my work is not really exactly in in those in those areas in the tradition in the traditional sense and then on but but on the other hand in the in the canadian politics area and people doing canadian studies um there's this sort of uh gap in terms of looking at the role of canadian corporations in the broader global global capitalist uh context so there isn't really like there isn't really a good home i i would say for people who are doing this work um and that's and which is one of the reasons why I really want to collaborate with Belden on this on this project, right? Because someone like Belden, who has uh, Canadian politics as a as as a subfield in his in his PhD, and who has this real good kind of uh, grounding in uh, Indigenous politics and studies in Canada, and me from the kind of international perspective, these kinds of collaborations I think are really important uh, in getting people in those two things to talk to one another and work and and work together, so that we can kind of build on this on the scholarship of canadian actors um uh, abroad in in my case and this stuff that i'm uh, the stuff that i'm working on yeah I, i'll just say the experience of reading the text um what i really appreciate about the dual perspective that you have brought through the edited chapters the at home and abroad um is that what it allows the reader to do is engage in a study of the Canadian state, Canadian society, um, that actually isn't necessarily centered on Canada, but rather on these things that are made to appear as peripheral. So Indigenous nations uh, enduring Canada's colonization directly in terms of Canada situating itself on their territory, or um, Canada providing the legal cover and structure for mining companies, especially in the global South, to extract from their territory. And what I think the impression of the text as a whole is that listeners can really glean a lot from is that wherever you end up encountering Canada in this text, it appears as an alien force, actually. Um, And you've really done an excellent job over the composition of this text, 
in denaturalizing the place that Canada claims to have in the world, whether at home or abroad. Uh, and I, I found that really invaluable uh, over the course of the, the text as a whole. Which kind of bleeds into my next question for Dave, uh, which we've been talking about Canadianist literature and you've positioned yourself slightly outside of it, but I, I'm going to ask the question anyway. Uh, typically, there are three ways in the Canadianist literature that Canada's relationship to imperialism has been described. That is Canada under empire, that is as a subjugated polity. And this has both left and right traditions. Left-wing nationalism in Canada has a long tradition of this. There's Canada in empire, which I think Veldon alluded to this literature on Canada as a secondary power within global imperialism. Uh, and then there's a third, maybe more nascent literature uh, on Canada as empire. That is, the Canadian polity, the state system itself, is an imperial uh, project in its own right. How do the contributors to capitalism and dispossession describe or theorize the position of what Tunaha scholar Joyce Green calls Project Canada within a broader imperial world system? Another great question, Phil. And um, I'll just start by saying that the uh, that most of the authors on my side of the book, anyway, don't explicitly address this question. So uh, what I'll be doing is is sort of uh, drawing out, teasing out, and then maybe in, inferring what uh, what I gather from their analysis. Um, and I think most of the contributors in this book would lean towards the third uh, the, the third category that you've described here, right? So Canada ha- as it's as an imperial power in its own right. And part of the reason for that is the um, the emphasis on mining in the book. So several of the case studies are are looking at mining. And as a lot of the listeners would would know, uh, Canada is a mining powerhouse, right? So something like seventy five percent of uh, uh, global mining corporations located headquartered in Canada or listed on the TS, uh, uh, TSX. So so that's I think where a lot of them come from with their mining expertise and their analysis of of mining focused on Canada in its own right as a very powerful state globally and, inter- and internationally. So, um, you know, so people like Sakura Saunders in her in her book, trying to understand how the Canadian state acts internationally, but also domestically in order to make sure that states aren't held, uh, corporations aren't held accountable. But then also in my half of the book, too, you, there's people like Tyler Shipley, who co-authored a chapter with me on on banking. So Ty, again, Tyler's work is really fantastic. Um, and his book, uh, Canada in the World, gets sort of leans more towards this third um, this third analysis where we can understand Canada in its own right as an imperial power and as projecting imperial corporate power uh, abroad. So I think that's uh, more or less where most of the contributors would would uh, would would fall uh, if I sort of uh, uh, extrapolate some of their analysis further. That's great. And Veldon, did you have anything you wanted to add on this topic? Yeah, so um, th- there's a lot that, that comes out of like indige- indigenous perspectives. Uh, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find any indigenous person who would think that Canada is under empire as a subjugated polity, where we're sensitive to the viewpoints of some of the other solitudes, right? So there are um, a few <laughs> Republican right-wing views. Uh, so some secessionist groups that have very marginal and fringe in Canada. So 
There was the Wexit, sort of the Western alienation group. There's always been uh, a bit of the Quebec sovereignists that they felt that, well, you know, the inheritance of New France by Britain after the Seven Years' War in 1763 has, has left them as not just the junior partner in Canadian confederation but just a nation of peoples who are uh well subjugated not necessarily polity anymore as uh whatever sort of state they might have thought that they have has been dissolved and involuntarily incorporated into the canadian uh federation canada and empire sort of lightly you you might see uh, especially during these times when we're discussing the discussing the role of the monarch, which is you know the head of state, although it is actually the king or queen of Canada, not just the one that is of um, the UK, seated uh, over in a foreign country. When we have our treaties, they are international instruments, so documents of diplomacy, whether they modify uh, or address territorial rights and title. Or they may be economic, so in terms of trade, what have you, or military alliance, so those other diplomatic instruments. Uh, we might see them as through or mediated through Canada with a, a colonial power that's seated elsewhere in the figurehead of the crown, sitting on a throne in London, England. Not really. Uh, that's a little bit... Uh, that's a little bit of the symbolism of the relationship we have, but we see Canada as an empire, as, you know, we might jokingly say sometimes when we see the royals over here in Canada that, whoa, they, they come to visit the colony uh, and refer to Canada still as a colony of Great Britain, although we see Canada as an empire over approximately 60 indigenous nations which have been colonized into it, is that, you know, we are the colonies and we're treated in very marginal ways and just to you know point out about joyce green who happened to be my ma supervisor and know very well her examinations and, and talking about is like canadianist and, and political science and she's also a political theorist um talking about project canada is that it emerges sort of out of the the fragments or at least the the political elites that wanted to create a new nation and, and new nations aren't uh, created all the time. So Canada being one of the youngest countries in the world, it emerges out of these ideas of this terra nullius, these lands that are to be discovered, uh, destroying indigenous nations, consolidating them, their peoples as subjects. And I apologize for the dogs at the moment. Uh, I'll go on mute in a moment, but um is is we do see ourselves as again involuntarily incorporated not really as federated units though not at all there's some treaties that are upheld um, or at least observed in small parts but that there is an empire which uses our territories as um as, as and then i use the sort of analysis again from Hannah Arendt is the scramble for our territory. So capital eyes them up uh, in the same way that Hannah Arendt was talking about the scramble for uh, territorial wealth where the emancipated, those bourgeois capitalists could escape the powers of politics and uh, join the mob-like uh, refuse of human beings 
and violently dispossessed indigenous people. So there's still those violent incursions and we're still subordinated and subjugated uh, fractured polities. Like we're, we're remnants of a former polity, um, very much stateless, stateless nations that are there for the luxury of organized capital. And it's very voracious and rapacious kind of, um, I guess, inclinations for devouring all that's good and valuable in their eyes. So I think, I think you'll, 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 you'll find that amongst indigenous theorists, most definitely, especially, um, uh, you know, and I mentioned them earlier before Glenn Coulthard, um, you know, even has a chapter subjects of empire. Um, so in his book on red skin, white masks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think that that both of these answers go back to the previous question about what, one form of the spatial myopia that this book is correcting is, which is the a historical account of the contemporary state system, actually, and viewed from 1865 in Red River, Canada is very clearly an imperial project on a continentalist scale. And having achieved that uh, colonization of what Canada calls the Northwest, but is just the central areas of northern north america uh then it becomes this sort of global powerhouse that today as dave points to is so deeply enmeshed in global extractive industries as well i think the text as a whole moves us to that uh, vision of canada quite clearly uh veldon in your chapter you trace out uh an ongoing legacy of ecological contamination and anti-colonial struggles at grassroots First Nations, which you've alluded to a couple times throughout this interview. Um, could you describe this situation to listeners who may not be familiar with it? And perhaps at the same time, drawing out your own contribution to the expanding literatures on environmental racism uh, alongside Ingrid Walden, who has a similar chapter in a different case study in this volume. Uh, and in particular, if you could hone in, you use a concept that I was not uh, at first familiar with, but its brilliance really struck me, accumulation by contamination. Uh, what processes that drive environmental racism does this particular concept help you to draw into sharper relief? Right. So my, my own chapter amongst the, you know, sort of the opening theoretical uh, discussion that Dave and I have in the book, uh, so I looked to it and a family from a place called, and, and I can't pronounce their indigenous name, but it's uh, Grassy Narrows, they're Ojibwe. And Grassy Narrows is fairly notorious and it's um, uh, northwestern Ontario. It's north of a little town called uh, Kenora. It's seated sort of up, up in that area of the lumber and timber extraction center of Ontario. And uh, this chapter, I guess, resonated with the uh, characterization that Harold Ennis, one of like the greats of founders of Canadian political economy, the hewers of wood and drawers of water, because it invokes both both wood and, and water. Up there, there is this ecological crisis that had unfolded in the last 60 years, mostly in the 1960s, which has devastated the people there that uh, 
about 90% of the population, the indigenous population, which are, uh, you know, several hundred kilometers, not several hundred kilometers, but over a hundred kilometers up into, I guess, the woods outside of these uh, urban centers, which when I mentioned Kenora and Dryden, they're about 15,000 people each. So it's a sparsely populated region uh, for most people who don't know Northwestern Ontario, I think it's about the size of France. It's, uh, it's fairly large, uh, mostly occupied, um, like inhabited by indigenous people. So there's still um, almost, I think, a minority as well, non-indigenous people, um, but not when you go to these urban centers, especially Thunder Bay, which has over 100,000. In any case, uh, there was the Dryden Mill, uh, which I don't know if it's still in operation today because it's changed hands several times. It's being, it's being, sometimes it's shut down, sometimes it's not. Um, but in the 1960s, it dumped about nine, almost 10,000 kilograms of untreated mercury into the English Wabagoon Riverway. So it was seen like the, the mill itself was a craft paper mill. So using it for all different sort of, um, um, I guess, forms of paper, like broad news sheet, what have you. Um, and uh, it requires a, a great deal of chemical treatment just to mush it up into the craft and whatever it does to bleach it. And they were just dumping it right into the river for almost about 10 years. And the community, and there's actually two indigenous communities that are about uh, 10 kilometers apart, but mostly Grassy Narrows has, has garnered most of the attention where they've uh, been the center of organization is that they have Minamata disease, which is mercury contamination. And it's a neurotoxin, which renders your life like it's a it's a really miserable existence and it's named after the contamination of several thousand peoples in minamata japan so in the 1960s people started noticing uh a disproportionate like that you would not find by chance in uh, epidemiological studies of population that people had extensive like you get tremors uh all sorts of matters of the mind cognitive issues as well uh blindness children are born with deformities and what have you uh tracing it back that they were downstream from the dumping uh from this mill which had been sustained uh by the state basically so i I introduced the canadian state that said you know part of our dream for creating this empire this project canada is devouring the natural assets irrespective of who it harms up there so there's basically the mob those people that go up there it's not harming those and this is the myopic like spatial perspective that we have is we don't see it it's out of sight out of mind for those in the southern part of ontario uh so they're still struggling with this. It's 60 years. They'd shut down or at least prohibited the dumping of these chemicals into the waterways. It introduced one of Canada's first environmental protection regimes because in, in Ontario, we did not have an Environmental Protection Act until people started raising flags about what was happening there. Yet still, the people have been ignored. There's about 1,000 people that live up there. May not seem like a large number in terms of the scale. It's not like you know several thousands in a city of you know ten or fifteen thousand, or even in Toronto, it would still raise eyebrows. But 
uh, I wanted to bring an analysis that's in line with the accumulation by dispossession of a term that's been developed by some theorists, especially over in Europe, of accumulation by contamination. So it brings in public economics, uh, the ideas of negative externalities, and how do you accumulate wealth, or how do you offset or at least um, shore up the accumulation of your wealth by uh, dumping costs onto others. So there's the environmental racism perspective that Ingrid Waldron brings is that, and, and I think most of the other chapters, they don't say it explicitly, but if you're looking at say diamond mining and other mining as well, the processes and the environmental impact is devastating. And there's a couple of the, chapters, especially Don Hugavine and Russell Myers is looking into the environmental assessment processes is like the state permitting corporations from doing very bad things to the milieu and environment of which indigenous people still live. Again, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's not the water that we drink in Ottawa or in Vancouver. Uh, it's, it's not the air that we breathe yet. They're left with these devastating consequences um, but the accumulation by contamination is how, what is another way of stealing an asset? It may not be the physical theft of water per se. And this is sort of the life sustaining force for the people of Grassy Narrows for millennia because they, you know, fish and they drink and whatever sort of matters to live. It is their commons. And in a, in a way it is the, the enclosures of the commons for the dumping ground for these corporations that, Hey, you know what? We could increase our profits by reducing our costs, which, you know, is, is the same old capitalist calculations. Uh, but dumping it into nature's sink as it were, but creating, well, nature's toilet. And, but it's not everyone's, it's not, it, it, it is communally held by the indigenous peoples and the value of their water is extracted through the contamination. So this, what economists, when they're looking at, hey, what affects us all when uh, a corporation, a smokestack is polluting our air, is there's this negative externality. It's not captured, it's not internalized costs. It just sort of spills over into the public realm. And that that cost is assumed by the public. It should be a rightfully privatized cost for the private producer. It's not in this in this case. So they're dispossessing them of their waterways, of their lifeways, um, without taking the the river. They're making the river. They're converting it into a form that steals all the value basically from it. It is accumulating the 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 wealth and value by contaminating it um and and this is done with through the lens of environmental racism which uh ingrid Ingrid waldron has written extensively about and we were really lucky to have her contribute to this volume is her analysis of the alting gas is this myopic viewpoint again is that we do it out of sight out of mind racialized not necessarily along class lines we, we do understand this in urban planning is that there are spaces that are you know basically organized 
class divisions. There's like the ghetto or what have you and other derisive terms we might have for places where society is less desirable from the viewpoint of those looking down their noses of society's elites is that we would never allow this pollution in our own spaces. We, we deserve an entitled and actually will accumulate through these processes of capital um, the means to provide those luxuries for ourselves, but we'll offset them onto the brown people, the black people, uh, those that we deem less worthy than ourselves. So both of those are at play here in the chapters by Ingrid Waldron, where she's looking at the grassroots grandmothers and the fight against Dalton Gas, but also in uh, my own chapter with Grassy Narrows and the Dryden Mill and the state's the state's role in both of these is shoring up these corporate incursions, especially in Grassy Narrows, where the uh, private corporations going public private, but uh, held by wealthy capitalists, their bad deeds are subsidized by uh, the crown, both the province of Ontario and the federal government paying for the liabilities done to these indigenous peoples. And it's only been in the last year or two where they've actually decided, well, we'll make do on or we'll come up with some of the commitments we made in the mid 80s on a class action lawsuit of providing the necessary care because they're still struggling with the some of the poorest health imaginable and some of the most cruelest conditions of the neurotoxins legacy on the physical physiology of you know the brain and, and the body as well so uh, the state the state draws its resources from the taxpayers to offset uh the liabilities incurred by the corporations but also giving them a pass giving them immunity to carry out these what in my mind are otherwise violent atrocities against indigenous peoples thanks felden i think that that's really really helpful and it also is a helpful way to understand how it is, as you point to, especially in Ingrid Waldron's case study, although I think it's the case in Grassy Narrows as well, it's often Indigenous women uh, or racialized women who are at these sites of contamination who lead the community uh, in its resistance and its struggle against the continuation of these things. And I think what you your concept of uh, accumulation by contamination helps us see is why that's the case from both a dialectical perspective, but also uh, in terms of the pre-existing nature of governance systems within those communities as well. Um, Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add to this specific question? No, that's great. The way Velden described it. Great. Um, so just headed into our last couple of questions here. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is the work of how a book actually comes into being in the world, because we see them as commodities and we often just think that they're that thing, but there's a lot of social relations and labor that goes into it. Uh, this is a really ambitious one because it contains 12 chapters, by my count, 15 contributors, uh, and they're from a number of academic disciplines and non-academic institutions as well. Mm-hmm. Could you both talk a little bit about some of the practical steps that our listeners might consider if they're setting out to produce a similarly collaborative intervention? Sure, I, I could start with uh, a, few, a few things. So this was the first time I'd worked on a, on a on an edited collection like this, and 
I was really uh, hesitant at first because I think we sometimes get very isolated working on our own little thing and think that that's sort of all that we can do. Um, but uh, I, I would only describe this as a really uh, enriching and, and wonderful process uh, working on, on on the book for a lot of different reasons, uh, but mainly because of the, the kind of uh, collaborations and connections and relationships that were established during the book. Um, which was really exciting for me to 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 meet some some really fantastic people uh, and and work with them and and hopefully work with them again in the future. So it was a really uh, positive experience for me. Um, I'll just say the one of the really when you're kind of thinking through uh, a, a, an edited or co-edited collection and how to go about it, the thing that really helped me was a very early conversation with with a, an editor at at Fernwood Publishing. So uh, this was uh, Candida Hadley, who who actually doesn't work for uh, Fernwood any longer. But I started working with her, and we had this really fantastic uh, telephone conversation before I had even finalized the proposal for for the, for the book. And there's there's lots of different ways to do this, but I'll just tell you the way that she described it and 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 why I found it to be so helpful. Basically, what she said was. Um, when you're when you're thinking of what the book will look like, have a really good idea in mind what exactly you want to have in the book, right? So come up with an idea of what kind of case studies you want to have and how the book's going to be organized, and then from there go find the people who can do who can help you execute that plan. Find the people who can write those chapters, which is which is um, a bit of a different approach than say sending out a mass call for chapters. So some people send out a call and just say, this is what the book's about. You know, please feel free to send in abstracts or, or ideas, which I think can also work. But one of the things she, she cautioned me against at the time was that that approach can sometimes just bring a total mishmash of things that may or may not be related to one another. And so she said, think carefully about what cases you want to have in the book and then go find the people. So that's basically what I did at the beginning. Um, so on my half of the book, the international cases, I I, I thought, you know, I really I wanted to have um, cases from different geographic geographical places in the world. So I I want to have a case on in Guatemala where there's a lot of Canadian mining and there's a lot of people doing good work on that. I want to have this case in Indonesia because I happen to to know Tracy pretty well at, at uh, in Fredericton who's doing work on the area, and I want to have a case somewhere on the African continent, which drew me eventually to look. Um, at this case in Burkina Faso. Um, and then on top of that, I thought I also want to p- pull in some cases that are not mining, that are outside of mining. So this is where I collaborated with Tyler Shipley on the Canadian banking case. Uh, and then we also had a chapter, I had a chapter planned that, that fell through in the end that looked that was going to look at um, Canadian weapon sales uh, abroad, in particular in the Gulf states. So that's how I kind of planned out that half of the book. And then with Veldin's half, I mean, we ended up doing this collaboratively, but initially I was thinking, you know, what are the big, what are some of the big contemporary cases that are garnering a lot of interest today? So out in this part of the country, the Alton gas case was really important. So I wanted to find someone doing that. In my mind, the Grassy Narrows case was really important. I wanted to find someone uh, working on that. And then I wanted to f- have a case in the North, uh, looking at looking at the, the Arctic and, and, and the North, which led us towards Rebecca, Rebecca Hall. So that's sort of the way I went went about uh, doing that. Um, but the other thing I'll say about it is that th- that I that I learned 
and then I'll hopefully take take forward uh, in working on other uh, projects, is that you can have your plan, but also be flexible, right? And also listen really carefully to the contributors. So initially, I had reached out to Velden um, to ask him if he'd like to do a chapter on Grassy Narrows. But then in our, you know, many conversations over FaceTime and and telephone and what and whatever else, it quickly became apparent that the book was going to be a lot better if Velden was actually a co-editor. And then we started talking about that possibility, right, Velden? And and this is and so I you know I pulled Velden in um, uh, to to a, to a totally different role in the book as a as a co-editor, which I think in the end made the book a much better book than it would have been if I would have just tried to do this by myself. And another example would be, you know, I, I had got Tracy Glynn to agree to write the chapter on the mining in, in Indonesia. And then I talked to her about other possibilities, which led me to Sakura Saunders. And then Sakura said, you know what, if you're going to do the chapter on Guatemala, the person to talk to the goat the, must be Jennifer Moore, who I had on my list, but she said, this is the key person. So then I reached out to Jen Moore who agreed to do it and then pulled in two of her friends and colleagues to, to really make a fantastic chapter on, on Guatemala. So you can have a really good plan, but then also um, in your conversations and, and relationship building with the, with the contributors, listen really carefully to them uh, and, and lean on them and rely on them to help, help, you know, build, build a really good volume. So that's, I think just quickly how, um, how I went, went about it. But as you say, um, um, Phil, this is a really good point, right? There's um, all kinds of different labor goes into something uh, like this. Um, and so, for example, even at the publishing uh, company, the editors, the copy editors, the people doing the marketing and, 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 and communications, um, the people doing the, um, the, uh, uh, product, the book production, the cover design. I mean, I could go on and on of all the different people that we worked with at, at Fernwood and some people who they contract out uh, to do work to do work for them, um, that that is uh, uh, really important for for pulling something like this uh, uh, together. Um, so, anyways, I'll stop there. And if Elden wants to add anything, that w- that would be fine too. I would only add that um, try to avoid uh, a pandemic when embarking <laughs> on something ambitious. <laughs> Is um, this was this was planned out uh, proposal? Everything was reviewed in late fall of 2019, and as you know, by um, the winter 2020, uh, the world had changed quite a bit. And uh, contributors, especially myself, living with children, homeschooling, a different work environment that made it almost nearly impossible to be productive whatsoever. Uh, through a little bit of a you know, a wrench into things and that probably delayed things by about a year. But um, uh, if you can't avoid a pandemic, uh, just have, I guess, uh, people as ambitious as, as Dave on the team. So uh, most of the legwork was done by by Dave throughout this. So he was he was in the driver's seat for most of it. And uh, sometimes I was a backseat driver. I think sometimes mostly the passenger, uh, the navigator, perhaps uh, at times. But uh he did all the heavy lifting really so um and um yeah i mean that's that that was it it's uh it was the pandemic kind of threw things a little bit astray but um if you have somebody at the wheel they'll keep it going and and i'm grateful for dave for doing that yeah 
And we were in the end, I think we were really lucky. I mean, we, we really only had, um, I, th- I think one, one person, uh, who, who had initially agreed to do a chapter and who couldn't get the chapter completed. Everyone else who agreed to do it, uh, got the work in and we, and we were able to, to put it together. I mean, and the very last thing I'll say is that sometimes when you put a collection like this together, sometimes you also, um, have to let some things go. Right. So, so I, when I first started thinking about this book and, and working on the proposal, I really wanted there to be a chapter on Wet'suwet'en. And, and it's such an important case in this, in, you know, for what's going on in the world uh, today. Uh, but try as we may, we did, we couldn't, we couldn't secure a person to write that chapter. And, and eventually kind of, but eventually I had to just, you know, I didn't want to let it go, but eventually you got to let some things go and move and move on and, and put put it together uh, without maybe that one or two things that, that you thought that needed to be in it. Yeah, there there was uh, a few aspirational things. I'm Algonquin, so I did want to do something on Algonquin, and there's quite a bit uh, that can be said, especially about, um, say, the Algonquins of Barrier Lake. Uh, but I also have family from Grassy Narrows that I wanted to focus some of my academic concentration on and focus just to raise awareness around their situation and um yeah that didn't pan out either but um yeah the pandemic made things slightly difficult but not not unmanageable these sound like the makings of perhaps a sequel that uh could be something to the effect of uh anti-capitalist struggle and decolonization um with that in mind the traditional final question from the new books network uh, is to ask our guests what you're working on right now. And so if either of you have ongoing research or community projects that you'd like to highlight, uh, please feel free to do so. I could, I could mention just a couple, a uh, couple of quick things. So, um, in my efforts to extend the, the conversations about Canadian corporations abroad, um, and in my efforts to extend it beyond mining, uh, like I did with the Bombardier book, um, I'm starting out on a couple of different avenues. So one is looking at Canadian insurance companies. So we have like a few of the world's uh, biggest insurance companies uh, globally uh, in, in Canada uh, and, and are operating in all kinds of places around the world. And the second one is a, a, a case study of Canadian uh, cannabis producers actually in uh, primarily in Jamaica. It was the case that I'm looking at. So those are two things I'm looking at in the same sort of area of uh of uh, of research that i've been doing in the past and then a third thing i'm looking at is uh, uh very early conversations with a scholar named uh, hayden king um about um uh, a potential edited collection on international relations settler colonialism and indigenous peoples um and so we've again very very early stages we wrote a, a chapter for a a book that's going to come out next year on this topic, but we're thinking about maybe a, a bigger project. And myself, um, I've done a bit of work and uh, also the pandemic had held quite a bit up, but um, a few other publications that came out. I work with um, Rebecca Hall, one of the contributors on um, work on Indigenous labor. So that's much of my other work and a little bit of the theory work. I, I do stuff with uh, Margaret Moore, who is a political theorist and philosopher at Queen's University uh, around normative questions of justice and territory. Um, she wrote a book several years ago 
uh, incidentally, I'll plug that one and, and Glenn Colthard's again, because it, I think Glenn's wanted out in the Canadian Political Science Association in 2015 for Red Skin, White Masks. And Margaret's book, A Political Theory of Territory uh, from Oxford University Press was up against it. But uh, work on that, probably trying to walk through liberal political theory and see what it means for many other Indigenous peoples. But um uh, aside from that, still my sort of uh, critique of capitalism and work with uh, Rebecca and Leah Vosco and others on Indigenous labor. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you both uh, for joining us. And uh, yeah, David Thomas and Belden Coburn, co-author, co-editors of Capitalism and Dispossession, Corporate Canada at Home and Abroad, out now from Firmwood Press. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Great, great, uh, Great conversation.